scripture reading today is Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations of the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is the word of God. We are getting towards the end of our journey through Revelation, and we come here to this moment to what we call the final battle. And as I was praying through the text this week and thinking about how to, how to preach a sermon on these words, I, I thought, you know, these are uh, quite the events that will happen. Um, but what I want to do is actually spend a little bit of time unpacking sort of what we see here in Revelation. And then I want to turn our attention to a, a really interesting exchange between Jesus and some of the religious leaders of the time um, and what I think is probably Jesus' best te- or most clear teaching on the devil himself. That'll be in John 8. So we're going to start here, and then we're going to turn our attention to the gospel. Uh, let's begin by looking at this passage. We have this final battle, this final scene laid out for us. When the millennial reign reaches its climax, Stan has been preaching on the millennial reign. Okay, so we get to the final climax moment, just before the second coming of Christ, is that Satan will be released from his prison. That is to say that the restraint that God had placed on Satan until this point will be removed. He is free to do as he pleases. He'll immediately gather all the unbelieving nations of the earth and make war against God and his people. Now, this war is actually identical, I believe, to the the Armageddon that is described in Revelation 16, also uh, described in Revelation 19. Um, They're different depiction of what I believe is the same event, the same final battle between the kingdoms of Satan and the kingdom of Christ. And these unbelieving nations in this text are referred to as Gog and Magog. Their number is like the sand on the sea, Uh, It's a way of describing an innumerable number. So imagine a massive, massive gathering of people and armies together. And so from our point of view, a human point of view, what we see here um, is the final assault on the church will appear to be an easy win for Satan and his forces. By numbers alone, it doesn't look like Christians stand a chance. But, What we know and what we have been coming back to time and time again is that no matter how big these armies are, they are no match for the risen Christ. Even though the enemies of the kingdom surround the camp of the saints in the beloved city, they have no hope for defeating the king of kings and lord of lords. 
And sometimes when we, we, people have tried to interpret these passages, there's no real biblical basis, I don't think, to try to place Gog and Magog with literal empires like Russia or China or whatever you may try to think that these represent. Rather, this text tells us that these nations are going to be at the four corners of the earth. It's sort of painting this picture, right, that they're going to be a massive assault on the church. And then we have the description of Satan's defeat, The destruction of the unbelieving nations is swift and it is final. We have this image of a fire falling down from heaven. Um, Is it literal? I'm not sure. It could be like that of Sodom and Gomorrah when fire uh, came down and consumed people. Regardless of how it actually happens, the point is that it is total, consummate, and final. It is a victory for God's people and a total defeat of Satan and his forces. Paul speaks of this in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1. He says, when Jesus returns, he'll be revealed from heaven with mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And so we have Satan, the beast, and the false prophet all thrown into the lake of fire. Now remember, Satan is a spiritual being meaning I'm not sure fire can actually harm him in that sense. The beast and the false prophet are primarily symbolic images of the corporate or institutional forces that are opposed to Christ, whether that's political, religious, military, whatever that may, might be. So the lake of fire and sulfur is designed to invoke an image for John as he's reading this, as he's seeing this, an image of suffering, endless suffering for those who are unrepentant in Christ Jesus. Now, What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us today and how we move in the world? Well, this depiction of events is telling us what is going to happen in the end. When Satan is released once and for all, when he is defeated once and for all. But for now, we live in a world where Satan is still at work. There's evil in the world but there's also good in the world, praise God. A few days ago, I took my dog for a walk. It had finally cooled off. It had been 100 degrees for like 10 days straight. I don't know how long. And it was a beautiful evening. It was like 78 degrees. The sun was setting. It was with my wife and my kids and my dog. And we're walking as the sun's setting. It is a beautiful night. And I'll tell you, it felt good. I saw the beauty of God's creation. It was nice to be out when it wasn't scolding hot. And I remember returning home, putting the kids to bed and sitting on the couch and I pulled out my phone, which kind of ruined the good vibes as I'm scrolling through the news and I read about some pretty horrific things. I read about a hospital in Ukraine that was hit by a missile. Over 50 civilians were either critically injured or killed. I read about this new disease that they're talking about, monkeypox. I I was like, I don't even want to know. It just sounds terrible. I was reading about... uh, um, other, other events in the news, uh, it just seemed like one after the other was bad news, wildfires in the UK and in California, and um, I thought, man, there is evil in this world. And then I remember going to bed that night and not getting a great night of sleep, and it's the morning, and my wife had to go to work early, so I'm with the kids, and I remember just being in an irritable mood. Have you ever been in an irritable mood? 
this is how I felt. And I remember my son was doing something he wasn't supposed to be doing. And so I kind of was short with him and I snapped at him and, and I thought, oh, that, that's not good. And I had to apologize to him. And it was dawned on me that while there is evil out in the world, there are times when I sense evil even in my own life. Sometimes it creeps in in ways. And maybe you've faced this wrestling yourself. For over a millennium, the Christian church has had language to speak about this tension of good and evil. Whether it's good and evil in society or it's good and evil within our own soul, we've had language to talk about this. And this language is the the language around the world, the flesh, and the devil. These words put sense to all the things that we feel when we, when we sort of sense this tension, this war that's going on in us and in the world. These words, ideas, they run all throughout the scriptures and we see even Jesus himself speaking to this, which we'll look at in just a minute. But if you're familiar with the famous work of Sun Tzu, The Art of War, there's a famous line in that book that says, know your enemy. Know your enemy. In our case, we are called to know our enemies. When we unmask the strategy of the enemy, we are better to be able to be prepared for battle. And in the final sort of depiction of what will happen in the end in Revelation, um, that is going to happen when the devil will be destroyed forever. But for now, we need to uncover and learn to seek to know the devil's strategy because he is alive and active. The scriptures tell us he prowls around like a lion looking to devour. But we know his strategy and we have his playbook. Let's look at John 8, verse 31. Now this is a story uh, in the gospels that isn't usually taught in Sunday school. Uh, Jesus uses some really strong language, and uh, we're going we're to have some fun um, looking at this text together. So John 8, starting in verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone, which, for a moment, pause here. If you've read your Old Testament, you know this is nowhere near the truth, so they're already off base. Verse 34, Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence and you are doing what you have heard from your father. So these religious leaders then respond. They say in verse 39, Abraham is our father, they answered. If if you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the work of your own father. They respond, we are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have has God himself. Now I want to pause for a second. The word in the Greek here um, doesn't actually mean illegitimate children word for word. Um, there's, a, there's a stronger word here, a very... A very um, emotive word that they use, which is an innuendo meant to offend Jesus. 
They're essentially saying to him, look, we are not illegitimate children like you are. Okay, so that, that's, a, that's a piercing word that they shoot back at Jesus. In verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. But I've come here, I, I've not come on my own, God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. A few things out of the gate. For one, when Jesus speaks here, and he speaks about the devil, we can learn that for Jesus, his understanding is there is indeed a devil. The devil comes from the Greek word diabolos, which the root mean, literally means the slanderer or the accuser. It's one of the many, the devil is one of the many names used to describe this creature all throughout scripture. We've got terms like the great dragon we see in Revelation, uh, whether it's the Satan, the devil, the evil one, the thief, the accuser, the slanderer. We have all these different titles all throughout the scripture to describe the same creature. And to Jesus, this, this being is the most powerful being, one of the most powerful beings in all the cosmos. For Jesus, the devil was real, not just a myth, not just a figment of our imagination, not just um, some idea from a pre-scientific age that we know better now. It's not, it's not some little red guy with a, with a pitchfork and a tail sitting on our shoulder. No, no, for Jesus, the devil was very real. He was invisible but real intelligence who the evil behind so much of our soul and our society, he's behind all of that. And in this case, he's behind the religious leaders of the time. Now, there's a Hebrew slight that we kind of miss in the story. It's in, uh, Jesus ties the religious leaders from the temple in Jerusalem to a prophecy in Genesis 3 uh, about the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And he claims that the religious leaders um, are the seed of the serpent and the devil is your father, not Abraham. And you may be here hearing these words from Jesus and thinking, okay, I, I love the stuff that Jesus teaches about loving people and about wisdom and, and, and all that, but the devil, man, this is a little weird. This is a little wonky. You know, we, we know better now. We have Wikipedia. Uh, we've been enlightened. We don't need to believe in this devil stuff. That was only for the ancient people. It actually reminds me of something called the Flynn effect. Maybe you're familiar with this. If you're familiar, this guy, Dr. Flynn, was a sociologist from New Zealand who in the 80s was the first to popularize the idea that IQ rates were actually getting higher decade after decade. He basically said, you're smarter than your grandparents who are smarter than their grandparents and so on and so forth. And this idea went all over the Western world because it fit like a glove to the progressive worldview. He sees, uh, progressives see that the moral and intellectual leaders of society are ahead of the narrative arc of human history. 
where conservatives by definition are behind the narrative arc, progressives are by definition ahead of the narrative arc. So it fits right in. We're smarter than ever before. We know better than all the people of ancient civilizations because they didn't have science, they didn't have internet access, they didn't have higher education, all of that. Now, the fact is, the Flynn effect has been debunked uh, by just about every social scientist, including modern time, Malcolm Glad- Gladwell's whole podcast about it. Um, in fact, Flynn himself later in life said, yeah, all of it was bogus. And so this, is a, this idea has been debunked. All the recent research says that we're no more intelligent as human beings than we were thousands of years ago. We have more knowledge we, we know more things, but that does not necessarily mean we have more wisdom. It doesn't mean that we have more intelligence. It simply means, as humans, we have more access. All that to say, it's really easy for us to sort of fall into what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery and think that we just know better, that we're more enlightened and we don't need to worry about this devil stuff. What I want to invite you to do with me this morning is to imagine that perhaps the writers of the scriptures and Jesus himself may know a little bit more about the nature of reality than we do. They have a whole nother lens for us to sort of see the world, to see good and evil. And I believe that Jesus really believed that the devil was real. And one of the greatest tricks he ever played was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. The second point for Jesus, is that his end goal is to destroy you and everyone else. In fact, Jesus calls him in this passage a murderer. He doesn't just say he was a murderer. He says, no, he was a murderer from the beginning. This is, his, this is what he does. He says a few chapters later that the thief comes to still kill and destroy. And in the narrative of scripture, he is at war with God himself and God's vision for redemption. God who wants to see the world more beautiful and good. As C.S. Lewis once said, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Look, this is the reason Our soul, our mind, our body, our society, it often feels like a war zone. And this is is what the devil sets out to do, to cause chaos, to cause ruin, to destroy. And if the end, if the goal is for the devil to tear everything down, well, what is his means? How does he do this? Jesus tells us, actually, he says he is the father of lies, The devil lies to us. He gets us to believe lies. And then he follows up to say he speaks his native language. And hold up a second, because I think oftentimes when we think about battling against the evil one, and we think about it in a different way, we think about spiritual warfare, which indeed is something that we do as Christians in prayer. we, uh, I, I have some, some examples of this in my time in youth ministry. I remember one time we were at camp at Westminster Woods and there was a, a middle school girl who believed that there was a devil in her cabin. And so I was like, okay, maybe there is. And so we took a group of counselors and we marched around their cabin seven times. You know, it was a biblical number, like Jericho, right? 
And we began praying that God would remove any evil from that cabin and we sang a worship song and sure enough, when she went back in the cabin, there was no demonic presence. So I think it worked. Um, Could there have been a devil in that cabin? Perhaps, I don't don't know. Um, I had another high school student tell me that they believed the devil was after them. When I asked why, they said, it's well, I got two speeding tickets in one week. I thought, could be the devil. Could be that you were speeding, I don't know. Um, I've heard it said before that the devil is after me because I got a flat tire on the way to church. Could the devil have been in the flat tire? It's possible. It could also just be some Christian paranoia. Um, Here's the deal. What I want you to see is that in Jesus' most clear teaching on this, he doesn't mention any of, any of that. There's no demon in the stories. In other stories, there are, uh, but not here. In this case, it is an intellectual debate surrounding truth and lies. Let's reread verse 44 and 45. So you belong to your father, the devil. You want to carry out your father's desires. And remember here, he's speaking to the religious leaders. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there was no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe in me. You see, for for Jesus, the devil is real. His end goal is to destroy you and everyone else. And number three, his means, his primary strategy is lies. All the other stuff, demons, diseases, disasters, the flat tire on the way to church, all of that is second, third, and fourth tier strategy. The primary strategy was to get you to believe lies over the truth. And so our battle, our battle with the devil is that, to be able to discern what is true. So bear with me for just a minute. I want to ask you a philosophical question. I know it's early, but... I think we can do this together. The question is, what is truth? A good definition of truth is reality that corresponds, sorry, truth is that which corresponds with reality. So reality itself is true. If I say to you that I can fly and I leap off this platform and jump into the audience, and what would happen? I would fall face first, probably be injured and embarrass myself. That, even though it came out of my mouth as something I said it was true, it does not correspond with reality. I cannot fly. When we say something as a lie, we're saying something that does not correspond to reality. When I ask my boys, and this is a hypothetical situation, but I ask them, you know, uh, who forgot to flush the toilet? I ask my son, Pierce. He says, it was Henry. And I ask Henry, and he says, it was Pierce. And, and I'm like, all right, I got to get to the bottom of this. Who is telling the truth? Again, hypothetical situation. Um, I look at them both and I I can see sort of this little grin in Henry's mouth and he's kind of smiling. I said, Henry, are you telling me the truth? And he goes, maybe, right? I can see, started to come out that he's actually telling a lie. What he means and what he's doing is he is saying something. He's saying it was the other person when in fact it was him who did 
the thing. Truth is reality, what actually is true of the world. And lies are the opposite. You may call it unreality. So what we have as humans in our minds are something called, uh, what psychologists call mental maps of reality. Think of it like this. In my mind, I know this morning when I woke up at, at 5.45, how to get to the church because I've driven here many times. There is a map in my brain. So I get up early, I take a shower, get dressed, I drive to the church, and sure enough, I made it on time. If I were to have an incorrect map of reality, I would wake up, I would drive, I'd end up on the west side of town, and you wouldn't have a preacher this morning. The truth is this, we all have mental maps for all things in life, whether it's sexuality, money, power, love, romance, marriage, family, parenting, and time. And whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, we have these mental maps that help us navigate our daily lives. And here's where it gets interesting. As a human being who's given agency in the world, we have the unique ability to hold truths in our minds, but also things that don't correspond with reality at the same time. We have the capacity to envision what is and what isn't. And this is one of the main things that separates man from animal. It's what enables spirituality. It's what enables us to, to all of society to, to be able to exist. In order for society to function, we have to be able to organize our thoughts for the future. But not only do we have the capacity to imagine reality, we also have the capacity to believe in or trust that reality. Or put another, another way, to believe in ideas that are lies and do not correspond with the way the world actually works. And so when our ideas of reality don't correspond with reality, we show up to our sexuality or we show up to our relationships or our work or our creativity in a way that is not congruent with reality. And when we live in a way that is not congruent with reality, we cannot live with the creator's design for the world. When we do respond in reality, we thrive We flourish because that's God's design for us and how we are to live. And if not, tragically, we allow those lies into our bodies. We open ourselves or what the Bible calls the soul to a type of poison that can destroy us from the inside out. Lies lead to death. Psychologist M. Scott Peck in his groundbreaking groundbreaking work is done in the 80s. Um, wrote, wrote this, this work called The People of the Lie. And it was kind of an aftershock to the Western world because he started off as a secular psychologist and then late in his 40s, he came to believe that Jesus was reality. And so he began to follow Jesus much later in his life and he was the first who was really respected on an international level, a leading thinker of the day, was one of the first to do research on the nature of good and evil good people and evil people. And now, the scientific method is meant to be value-free, meaning there's very little research on good and evil and what makes people good or what makes people evil because you have to make a value judgment, right? You have to decide and, and use language about moral good and evil. You have to say, this is good, 
this is evil, this is moral, this is immoral. And so he comes out with this groundbreaking idea in psychology that there are evil people in the world, which as followers of Jesus and those who read the scriptures were like, we've been saying this for years and years and years. But to the secular world, it was, no, you can't say that. You can't make those, those statements. But what he says, and this is what I, what I want to point out, I think it's very profound, was he calls the devil a real spirit of reality. And his basic thesis was his working thesis of how people turn evil is when they believe lies. When they believe ideas that do not correspond to reality. And then with their body and not just their mind, they begin to live as if that lie were true. Case in point, if you believe that you're unlovable, if you believe that you're dirty, you're not worthy of love and respect, however that lie comes to you, whether it's through life experience, a parent wound, or perhaps a family of origin, however that lie comes to you, if you believe it in that moment, that doesn't make it true. It's still a lie. You're not unlovable. You're not dirty. You're not unworthy of love and respect. You're a human being made in the image of God. But if you believe that lie and you begin to live as if that lie is true, it begins to discolor all of your relationships, your marriage, the way you live in the world, how you, how you function in your community. And tragically, two, five, ten years go by and what was once a lie begins to manifest itself as truth in your own life. We can all live into these lies. This is the devil's strategy. He wants us to believe false uh, maps, false beliefs, false things about ourselves, about God, about the world. He lies to you. And then in Revelation 12, 10, what is the devil called? The accuser. So he flips it. He lies to you, tells you the lie, gets you to believe the lie. And then he tells you, who would ever love you? You're filthy. You're a loser. If anyone actually knew you, knew your secrets, there's no way you could ever be loved. If anyone knew who you really were, he gets you to believe the lies and then he accuses you of the lie. Friends, the devil has a strategy. He wants you to believe you're not attractive or beautiful unless you look like the person in the magazine or on Instagram or wherever. He wants you uh, to believe that you're only as good as you are successful at your work and that your worth is 100% tied up in what you can produce. He wants you to believe that you're a bad person incapable of grace. He wants you to believe that your life is a failure and that you have to be perfect for God to accept you. He wants you to believe lies. And the nature of his strategy, uh, the nature of his lies are deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. I'm paraphrasing Tim Keller here, but I'm going to read it again because it's a wordy sentence. The nature of his lies are deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. You see, we, we see this play out in a personal level, but we also see it play out on a bigger scale. Think of Nazi Germany as an example of this. At the time, before World War I and World War II, Germany was a leader in the Western world. They were the apex of Western civilization by basically every metric. 
whether it was the system, art, architecture, music. Think of all the composers you know were, were almost all German with a few Italians thrown in. Um, they, they were pretty much um, dominated the arts. Theology, they had incredible theology come from Germany. Think of the, the birthplace of the Reformation. Some of the greatest minds in Western Europe, science and technology, Um, They were decades ahead of the rest of Europe on sociopolitical theory, academics, education, and urban planning. So you have here the apex of Western civilization, and then a few decades later, World War I, World War II, and you see the entire society destroyed from the inside out. Why? It was destroyed because they believed lies. Ideas, by deceptive ideas about race, about ethnicity, about a nationhood that played to disorder desires for power, control, for money, for honor, for pride that were normalized in a sinful society. This is the part I want you to see. These were normalized, these, these views, these beliefs. It's not so much that they thought what they were doing in the moment was this immoral, terrible thing. It was that they believed what they were doing was Moral. And this temptation actually goes back to the Garden of Eden. If you go back, we want to be able to define good and evil when there's a voice in the back of your head that says, if you only eat of this fruit, then you will be like God. You see, the root of all sin, before it's ever about self-discipline or desire, rebellion, at the root, first and foremost, is about what do you believe to be true? As Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not I have truth, though he does have a lot of truth, but that he is truth. Capital T, the reference point for all reality. And later he says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Friends, you and I hear lies every single day. And that's not going to change. But as Christians, we need to be prepared to be able to see lies and not live into these lies. Because some of us will come to believe them, to trust them. And at that point, that power and authority can take, can be set loose in our bodies and sort of uh, wreak havoc on our soul. But if we believe the truth, it can lead us to life. I want to close by uh, this quote uh, by C.S. Lewis from his book on the Screwtape Letters. He writes, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. The devil either wants you to believe that he doesn't exist or he wants you to become overly obsessed and and interested in him. But I'll tell you this, and I think it's important for us, Jesus believed the devil was real. Jesus believed the devil was real and he gives a strong warning that he is also a liar. Now the good news is this, the devil will one day ultimately be destroyed forever and evil will be vanquished and that day is coming in the final battle. But for now, we are called to live in this world where there will be temptation, where there will be lies. And he's at work, but we have his playbook. So 
So let us today ask the spirit of God to take whatever lies are in us that have allowed to seep into our minds and our hearts and our culture and to replace those lies with the truth of the gospel. Jesus Christ himself. The truth that you are loved and seen and known by the creator of the world. The truth that God sees you in your suffering, in your hurt, in your pain. Even in your worst moments that God sees you and he's able to sympathize with you because he himself experienced suffering and pain when he was on this earth. The truth that Jesus cares for you, even the little things in your life. The truth that your past doesn't have to define you, the mistakes you made in your youth, the mistakes you made yesterday, that those are not the things that define you, that there is a new future in Christ Jesus. The truth that God forgives your sins, Jesus' life, death, resurrection, the blood spilled on the cross is enough to forgive you of your sins, past, present, and future. The truth that through his death, life, and resurrection, we can have salvation and eternal life. That when God sees you, he doesn't see your sin and brokenness. If you are in Christ, he sees Christ himself who took your place on the cross. The truth is that Jesus will return one day. And in that day, he will vanquish the devil, the beast, and the false prophet forever and ever that there will be a new heaven and a new earth and that God is in the business of redemption and he will continue that business all the way to the end. In the meantime, believe the truth. Let's pray. Father, I pray for all of us as we are faced with an onslaught of lies and things that we know are not true of what your word says. And so I pray that the word would get into our being, that we would believe the truth, that we would not be swayed to the left or to the right by by temptations and lies of the evil one. And though we look forward to a day when you come again and a day when all things are made new once and for all and the devil is vanquished, in the meantime, Lord, we remain faithful and steadfast We pray against the works of the evil one in our lives, in our church, in our city, in the world. And Lord, we join in the fight to believe the truth of Jesus Christ and say no to the lies of the world. Pray for your Holy Spirit to work and to reveal the lies that we've chosen to believe and that we would see that there is a better truth revealed in Christ. It's for your beautiful name I pray, amen.